The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. I want to welcome you today to the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. This podcast is an outreach of Zion Primitive Baptist Church, which is located in the Zion community near Gordo, Alabama. I'm Elder Chris McCool, and I serve as pastor of Zion Primitive Baptist Church. We are a congregation of believers in the sovereign grace of God where families worship together through the simple practice of preaching, praying, and singing. If you live in this area or are visiting here, we would love to have you attend worship services with us. We meet every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and every Sunday evening at 5 p.m. and the first and third Wednesday evenings at 6.30 p.m. I'm happy to note that our daily podcast is featured on Grace Alone Radio, which you can find at gracealoneradio.net. You can find the schedule on the website, and you can also download an app to your phone so that you can listen wherever you are. Grace Alone Radio is a 24-hour streaming service which carries the message of God's sovereign grace around the clock and around the world. Zion Primitive Baptist Church is located at 9487 County Road 49, Gordo, Alabama. That's near the intersection of County Road 49 and Alabama Highway 159, about eight miles north of Gordo, Alabama, and about 10 miles northeast of Reform, Alabama. If you're interested in finding more sermons, you can go to our website at zionpbc.com, that's z-i-o-n-p-b-c.com, where you'll find all of our posted sermons as well as a link to subscribe to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our website which will update you every time a new sermon is posted. As we continue in our series on baptism, we've begun to look at infant baptism and have begun to learn that infant baptism is not proper baptism. We have already gone through the historical evidence regarding infant baptism, and we continue today looking at Scripture itself for proof that infant baptism is not proper baptism. Join us today as we continue looking at this important issue that still afflicts the church today. First, we have a song selection that we hope you enjoy. Then please stay tuned for the message. We praise thee, O God, for the Son of thy love, Lord Jesus, who died and is now God above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. We pray. 
So, is there any place in Scripture that those who believe in infant baptism can go to say, okay, here is, is a foundation for it? Well, one of the places that many people who believe in infant baptism go to is, is to the household baptisms that we read about in the Scriptures. Um, I found five instances of household baptism in scripture and we're going to look at each one of those so if you'll turn with me over to the book of acts let's see what it says about somebody's household being baptized now the first one is cornelius's household over in the 10th chapter of acts and it doesn't actually i don't think it actually uses the term household there but i won't read the whole chapter you go back and read it but most of you who are bible readers know that Cornelius was the first um, he was the first Gentile convert that we read about in scripture he was a devout man we're told and there's a lot of preaching there about the fact that he didn't become a child of God after Peter came over there he was already a child of God is why he sent for Peter in the first place we're told in verse 2 he was a devout man and one that feared God with all his house okay now there's a talking about his household well, notice what it says about his house. They feared God. They feared God. We'll come back to that in a moment. But if you keep reading over there, you know, Peter, this is the place where Peter's, Peter's, uh, the Lord tells Peter to go. He says, oh, no, I can't go to an unclean household. And then that sheep comes down with all the unclean beasts. And God ultimately says, Peter, what I've called clean, you don't call unclean. You get over there right now. And I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that's basically what God said. He went over there and he found that God had, in verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Now, by the way, that's a good summation of what we believe as primitive Baptists. You know, some people believe that if you haven't followed their particular mantra, if you, haven't, if you haven't checked the boxes, so to speak, you haven't prayed the right prayer or made the right decision, uh, most of the time people say you've got to accept Jesus. And if you've got to make a voluntary, some kind of uh, uh, motion, so, so to speak, with your will to do that. But notice what it says here. In every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. You know, it's not about accepting God. It's about being accepted with God. And the only way to be made accepted is to be, the only way to be accepted rather is to be made accepted in the beloved as Ephesians chapter 1 tells us. But anyway, so Peter goes on in verse 47, he says, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? Now notice what had happened. If you go back to verse 44 and you read down through there, while Peter was preaching to him, the Holy Ghost fell upon those those over there in the household of Cornelius and this is not the coming of the new birth this is the manifestation of the gift of the Holy Ghost that was given to the early church okay there's two different things it was a it was a visible sign that God was there with them and notice that Peter said these can be baptized but but look at what he said these which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and then prayed they him to tarry certain days. So here we see, well, if you go on, let's, let's just look over, in, look over in chapter 11. 
In chapter 11, Peter has to give an account to his brethren about what had happened over there with Cornelius because they, they called him on the carpet. They said, what are you doing going over there to these unclean Gentiles? And he told them the story and all that. And then in verse 18, it says, when they heard these things, after Peter had shared with them what had happened, when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Now read all of that to say this. Nowhere in there do we read about any baby being baptized. All we read about in this passage is such as the verse 18 there of chapter 11, God had granted repentance. Remember what we said when we talked about who are proper subjects for baptism? Those who have repented and believed. Those are proper subjects for baptism. That's, that's something that we do after we're born again here in this life. We bring forth fruits, meet for repentance, and become a member of the church. It says that's the ones that God had blessed. And back over in chapter 10, we don't read about any babies in the household. We just read about Peter uh, baptizing those who had received the Holy Ghost as well as we. Doesn't sound like babies to me, does it to you? And in any event, there's no teaching in there at all regarding infants. Okay, the next example in, of household baptism in chapter, is found in chapter 16 of the book of Acts. This is Lydia, the seller of purple over there, whose heart the Lord had opened, we're told. And over here it says in chapter 16 and beginning in verse, uh, let's just look in verse 14. A certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. This was one who clearly had already been born again. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. So here's one who herself was a born-again, repentant, believing child of God. Okay? And it says her household... Was, uh, was baptized. Okay, hold that thought because later on in chapter 16, we're going to read about a Philippian jailer. Let's just look there now. In verse 33, we're told that, uh, well, if you actually start about verse 25, you'll read about what happened. Paul and Silas were singing and praying in the, in the, in the uh, prison and God heard them and an earthquake came and the foundations of the prison were shaken and they were let out of the prison. And then the keeper of the prison came and thought that they had run away and he knew that the Roman uh, soldiers would require his life because they had left. And so he pulled out his sword and was going to kill himself. And then it says that Paul said, no, we haven't left. He said, don't do this. We haven't left. And in verse 30, he says he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, let me just stop you right there and ask you a question. Does an unregenerate child of God care about being saved? I don't think so. <laughs> We've already proven that. We believe that here. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. Brother Spann, who was my pastor for many years, made this, shared that with us before. And I've shared it with you so much, you're probably tired of hearing it, but I'm going to share it again. That you can lay a thousand pounds of weight on the chest of a dead man and he won't feel anything. But you lay that same weight on the chest of a live man, he'll feel it. This was a live man feeling the weight right here, you see. 
And notice what they said. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. Now, I also want to stop you there and say, does that mean that if this jailer just believes in Christ, everybody in his house is going to heaven no matter what they, the condition of their heart? I think that would be very contradictory to everything else in the Scripture, wouldn't it? <laughs> you see, it's a very individual thing. But what he's saying here is, he's saying, believe on the Lord, thou shalt be saved. You know, you remember Zacchaeus? Jesus said to Zacchaeus, this day is salvation come to thy house. Didn't mean that necessarily every single one of his house would be a child of God, but it did mean that the teaching and the preaching and the gospel of salvation had come to this house. And, you know, we see then that in verse 32, they spake unto him the word of God to all and, and to all that were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. Now notice what they did. They preached the word to him and to all in his house. I want to ask you a question. If, if we, we got several young children here, but let's just think about a little baby, firstborn, newborn baby. How much good do you think it would be for me to go to that crib and to preach the gospel and say, hey, you need to believe this. This is what the Lord, you know, this is what the Lord did for us. How much good? That baby doesn't hear it. The baby's not going to understand it. Now, this, this is important. You say, that's a silly example. It's important because notice what happened here. Paul and Silas preached the gospel to all that were in his house. Those who believe in infant baptism say, well, see, there had to be babies in that house. Oh, really? <laughs> I beg to differ. Those, I wouldn't be preaching to a baby. And let me tell you, every household doesn't have a baby in it. You see, nowhere does it say that any infants were baptized here. As a matter of fact, it says that the ones that were baptized were those that had been preached to. And again, what's the point in preaching to a baby? Some people say, well, surely every household has an infant in it. Well, let me, let me give you an example. And we're, there's two, other, I just, Acts 18 tells us about Crispus. Who, who believed in the Lord with all his house, okay? You can go over there and read that sometime. So uh, Stephanus, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, was baptized along with his household by Paul. So the question becomes, does that mean that there were babies in that household? Well, let me tell you about a household in 2012 that was baptized. It was my household. It's when we joined this church here, Brother Mackey. I was baptized in October, but I was ordained, it was October 2011, I was ordained in March of 2012. That was on a Saturday. On Sunday morning, my whole household was baptized. All four of my children and my wife. Not one of them were babies. I had a household baptized that did not include babies. And this is my point. We can't assume from this, as many people do, that there were babies being baptized there. As a matter of fact, it's not in the scripture. So let's talk about another, another um, basis by which some who believe in infant baptism promote, uh, another basis they promote for supporting that. And the argument out there is that infant baptism has replaced circumcision as a sign. Well, I want to affirm to you, I do not believe that. I believe that inf infant baptism did not replace circumcision First of all, I believe it because it doesn't say that anywhere in the scriptures. 
There's nowhere in Scripture that it says that. And, and I ask this question, why would only circumcision survive the cross? You know, why not all the other ceremonial aspects of the law? Why just that one? Don't you think God would have specifically pointed this out if that had been the case? The only way to get baptism replacing circumcision is to infer that somehow, and it takes some theological gymnastics to do that, uh, that, that doesn't, you, you, you have to infer it using theological gymnastics that just don't work under the regulative principle that we stick to, which is that we don't do it if Scripture doesn't say it. Many scriptures teach us that the old way of worship has ended and the new way of worship has been instituted with Jesus' arrival. One of those places over in Hebrews chapter 9. Just turn there right quickly. We're not going to spend a lot of time there, but over in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning there in verse 1, we read that very, you know, about the ordinances of the law, the divine service, the public worship. It said it had a worldly sanctuary, a tabernacle, and it talks about the veils and the second veil, the, temple, the showbread and the table and all that, and, and, and the cherubim and, and the, the mercy seat and all that. And it tells us, it's, it's leading up to verses 7 and 8 particularly, where it says it's trying to show us how what we have is better. It says, into the second, that is the second part of the temple, went the, the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. While as the first tabernacle was yet standing. In other words, Christ had not come and literally fulfilled the requirements of the law to make the way clear into the presence of God. Now notice verse 9, which was a figure for the time then present. All these things that they did in the Old Testament were figures for the time then present. And he goes on to talk about that. And he says in verse 10, They stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them, on them until the time of reformation. The word there for reformation in Greek, is, it only appears one time in Scripture right here. And that word reformation means a setting up as of a new thing, you see. So something happened when Christ came to our public worship. He set up a new way. That's what happened. These were all figures, but we don't need them anymore. And if circumcision was to survive that, don't you think God would have told us, by the way, it's a time of reformation, except for circumcision, baptism has now replaced that. Nowhere does he say that. And by the way, the analogy doesn't hold anyway. The idea is that it's promoted by many in the Reformed community that the church and Israel are the same, but that's not really so. If anything, you might say that the church is the new Israel. But notice, you remember back over in Matthew chapter 16, when Peter and, uh, he was, uh, was asked and the disciples were asked, Whom do men say that I the Son of Man am? He gives them the answer, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He said, Upon this rock I will build my church. He didn't say I will go on building it because it got started in the Old Testament. He said, I will build my church, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven that was now at hand, that he preached was at hand, was the church of the living God, which he began to build there when he came on earth and is still building today, by the way. People are still being added to it. You see, and the circumcision analogy doesn't apply either because remember that it was only boys that were circumcised under the law. 
Circumcision only applies to boys, okay, not to girls. So does that mean we only baptize boys into the kingdom and not girls? You see, it just doesn't work. Circumcision is used as an analogy in Scripture. And I just direct you over there to it. Read chapter 2 of Romans sometime in verses 28 and 29, where he says, He is not a Jew which is one outwardly, and neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. The analogy that is used about circumcision is not about baptism. It's about the new birth. It's about being born again and being circumcised in the heart. The bottom line is this. The passages that people would go to to try to defend the infant baptism biblically just don't work. They just don't provide a foundation. As we bring this to a close this morning, I want to look at a couple of other reasons that dictate against infant baptism. One is this, and this should be obvious to those of us that believe in baptism by immersion. Infant baptism is not baptism, according to Scripture. We don't believe that here at this church. Again, I, I, I want to make clear, I'm not attacking anybody out there that maybe was baptized as a baby or uh, you know, sprinkled or poured or whatever. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing denominations that do it, but we need to understand why we don't do it here. We don't do it because we believe in baptism by immersion. And quite frankly, if I took a little baby up here and dunked him under the water and brought him back up, somebody might call DHR on me and, because that would be more torture than anything else, you see. Baptism is by immersion. Sprinkling and pouring, we don't believe, is baptism. That's in one of our fundamental articles of faith. And also, if you read Scripture about baptism, every time, these examples we read already, Every time you read it, baptism is always tied to the conversion of a child of God. And conversion, remember, is different than regeneration. Only the regenerated can be converted, okay? But it's always believer's baptism. Someone who has come to believe to, and to repent of, of the lifestyle and the sins in their past. See, the symbolism is wrong. The symbolism is wrong. You see, infant baptism is not consistent with Bible teaching about salvation. You remember what we said over what it says over in John chapter one. We'll just turn there as we bring this to a close this morning. John chapter one and verse twelve. It says, "But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name." Here's some believers here. Here's some people that have received the good news of the gospel. Some people who have believed in Christ, okay? And notice verse 13, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How does salvation come to be applied to the heart of one of the elect children of God? It's through the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit alone. And it has to precede, it has to precede the belief. And it does not come to one because mama or daddy were born again. In other words, I'm not born again because my parents were. You're not born again because your parents were. These babies here are not going to be born again because their parents are. And the symbolism that it puts forth when we baptize infants and call it a covenant relationship or whatever you want to call it 
say, well, the parents are saved, therefore we're going to just assume the babies are children of God as well. That that's, goes contrary to Scripture because it's an individual it's an individual application of the blood of Christ by the Holy Spirit, you see. So, let's go back and just wrap this up. What about infant baptism? Well, first of all, there's many people that are our friends, that are our neighbors, our loved ones, who are children of God who were baptized as babies. They, they engaged in this practice. And we don't excoriate them for it. First of all, they didn't know anything about it <laughs> when they were babies anyway. But our friends that subscribe to that, we don't want to attack them. We don't, we don't tear them down. We don't say, well, you're probably not a child of God because you believe in infant baptism. I'm glad we don't believe that here at this church. So first of all, we deal with them in charity. Okay. Secondly, though, as members of a historically Baptist church. We, we're primitive Baptists. And that, that name, of course, didn't come about to the early 1830s. But, but we go back farther than that to being Baptists and even back to Anabaptists and all the way back to before they called, were called that. We believe that believers are the only subjects of truth that should be baptized. And we stand on that because the Scripture is clear. It's there's no basis for anything else in Scripture. That's why I wanted to try to preach this this morning. I want us to understand where we're coming from. But again, we're not out there trying to tear down anybody else. But we are trying to stand on what the Word of God says. Thank you for joining us today on the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. I hope the message has been uplifting and beneficial to you and that the Lord will continue to bless you to grow in grace and knowledge of the truth. Join us again tomorrow for another message of God's sovereign grace. If you would like to subscribe to our website, please go to www.zionpbc.com and sign up for email updates. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact the church at zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. That's zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. Or you can email me directly at jchrismacool at gmail.com. That's the letter J-C-H-R-I-S-M-C-C-O-O-L at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. May the Lord bless you is my prayer. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.